HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one after your host, Darren Bresnitz. Happy New Year. One hell of a week. We hope that everyone is staying safe physically, mentally, taking a little bit of a break from doom scrolling, uh, checking with a loved one, checking with yourself, checking with a family member. Um, it's going to be a long winter. There's going to be a lot of heartbreak, both with people who are getting sick from Corona, people who are going through tough financial times, restaurants that are closing, and just the overall, I don't know, political theater that we're going through right now. So pace yourself, be good to each other, have a little bit of extra empathy when you can. We have a really great and inspiring tale today. Keith Corbin, shout out. Chef, co-owner, Alta Adams, and West Adams. Really incredible tale. Talks about the restaurant, his journey to being a professional chef, how he lifts up his community. And if you haven't been to the restaurant, what an absolute delicious treat. And then we dig into the archives. We're heading back to Danger Bird Records Studio in Silver Lake, where we hang out with Brazilian singer-songwriter Samira Winter, a.k.a. Winter, talking about college days in Boston, which I know something about, Goat Terriers, and we listen to some dreamy songs that we think are really nice for a cold winter day. So please sit back and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Let me just ask off the bat, how you doing today? Man, I'm awesome. Um, just feeling good, excited. Well, I have a lot of feelings at the same time too, you know, the industry, but, you know, we'll get into that. But at the moment, I'm feeling great. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to get into the roller coaster that is known as the pandemic, <laughs> especially when it gets into restaurants. But, yeah. you know, I wanted to go back um, to really the early days of your cooking because you grew up in Watts. So, you know, California, born and yep. bred. And your grandmother was, I would say, your culinary beacon. Um, and she she mixed a lot of Southern food, but also with L.A. culture. What did you learn from her? What did you take from her? How did she inspire you? I mean, I really wouldn't say too much of L.A. culture. My grandmother was like, her mother came over during the Great Migration, so she was like first generation mm-hmm. um, coming over. So she still had a lot of, lot of that Southern tradition and training, just like the rest of the community. You know, during the migration, they brought a lot of that Southern tradition mm. here to L.A., and um and Watts and Compton and areas alike. And so it was like um an extension of the South. So growing up with my granny, um, you know, she cooked the big meals, she cooked to feed the community, um, everybody hanging around, you know, eating. It's the same way you see in the South. Like everything is like big meals, um, feed a lot of people type portions. Um I watched her in the kitchen. It isn't too much that I got cooking lessons from her, but, um, you know, I grew up with my mother in the streets, my dad not around. So my granny kind of raised me and my siblings and with everything else that was going on in the world, I kind of found peace being under my granny and she spent most of her time in the kitchen. So Mm. I spent time with her in the kitchen, watching her, clean collard greens, um, clean chitlins, um, making stocks, gravies, frying chicken, you know what I mean? Um, asking for food while she's making it. And some things she let me taste and some things she tell me I got to wait for everybody else to eat like the fried <laughs> chicken. And, you know, and then I find myself, like many other people, walking past while her back is to the stove and grabbing a piece of chicken and hurrying out the door. Oh, yeah. And, and thinking I got away with it. But then when it comes time, to um, plate the food, I'm one chicken short than everybody else, and I'm wondering why. And it's like I know the answer, she know the answer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like having those fun moments with my granny in the kitchen, you know. Uh, the idea of like a chef being aware of everything that's going on in the kitchen, you know. My granny was that she had eyes in the back of her head. She she knew everything that was going on in the kitchen. She knew what was in her kitchen. You know, saying that the kitchen is a safe space to find some guidance and some calming has got to be such a great thing to latch on to early on. Because sometimes if you're not running your kitchen, you peek your head in and it feels like chaos. But if you're sitting at the center, it really is you're just you're you're controlling the whole situation. Is that something that drove you into cooking or something that you gravitated to later in life that that control and that calming center being in the middle of all the action um i think i mean the kitchen for me was a way of feeding my siblings 
It wasn't mm-hmm. about like an idea of a profession or any of that. Like my granny cooked dinners, but for the most part during the day, you had to pretty much fend. You know, she raised her kids. She was much older. She made sure we had dinner. But during the day, you got to pull out them leftovers in the fridge or you have to, you know, get creative with what was in the house throughout the day. She wasn't going back and forth in the kitchen making breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That just wasn't happening. Um, or she'd be in the kitchen all day preparing for a big dinner. So, like, just going in the kitchen and, and playing around at an early age with flavors and tech, like, like things like that and pairings, um, I learned early on how to be creative. Hmm. You know, um, I always have this saying, if the kitchen is not stripped bare, if you give me three ingredients, I can make it palatable. It that. may not be the best, but you can eat it without throwing it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like and I've learned early on how to turn these dials, you know, um, where everything is just not 50%, 50%. It's like you have to find those balance of notes to where it's palatable to me. Um, and I learned early on with that, just fending for myself, you know what I mean? Um, and feeding my brothers and sisters and just not having the money and resources, but having to take what was actually in the house and find a way to make it work throughout the day. So, yeah. You know, finding that love of cooking and feeding people early on, usually, especially people who come on this show, does lead to some sort of life in the restaurant business or industry and things like that. When did you start thinking about cooking as a profession and not just cooking, but, you know, getting into the upper echelons of fine dining? I mean, if you want me to be frank and honest, I started thinking about cooking as a profession when I was 13, when I was actually cooking in the streets. Mm. You know, um, what were you cooking? I was on the scientific side. <laughs> Got it. I hear you. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, and, and that, and that's, and that leads to something. So, we everybody knows that I grew up in the projects, grew up in the streets, had was part of the street culture. Um, ventured in cooking um, drugs and went to prison, and you know I found myself coming home from prison and was like. In order, in my mind, it's like in order to survive and get my life together, I have to stay away from the kitchen because I spent many years in the kitchen doing negative cooking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, I gotta stay away from the kitchen. That's like I gotta find something else. Not knowing that the kitchen ultimately is what was going to save my life. Wow. You know, um, yeah. when Daniel and Roy got together, that's why I'm thankful for Copenhagen. And them meeting and deciding to open this restaurant called Local and Watts, um, when they met, you know, they came and provided an opportunity in our community. And I, at the time, I had just lost my job at the oil refinery. I had my first job ever, uh, what I consider local, my first job, because I only had the, the oil refinery for a moment, just momentarily. But I, I was let go. So I worked so hard and got a promotion to general foreman. So they had to run a background check for me to drive company equipment. That background check revealed that I had been to prison. They let me go. So my hard work and promotion actually got me terminated. That's awful. Yeah, so for just like a couple of weeks, I was just in this whirlwind of going back and forth of like, 
just said, fuck this legal, legal beagle life. Like, it's like, there's nothing for me, you know? And my mother happened to call me and tell me that they just opened a restaurant in Watts. And um, they was hiring. And when I pulled up, it was funny because it was the exact same building that I once had prior to me going to prison. I used to have a clothing store. Mm. I went to prison and lost the property. And now this restaurant, this building has been transformed into this restaurant that now I'm applying for a job for and I ultimately got hired. Now, there's a, a an amazing part of the story where you started working as part of the construction crew, but then you wound up working in the kitchen. So how, was, yeah, how did that jump happen? Because that to but, me is one of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's part of the story. But that is a good learning moment for people. Like, how do I get from the outside of the kitchen to on the inside? But actually, actually, what happened was I got hired for the kitchen. I got hired actually for the kitchen, and the restaurant was still in development. Mm. So I talked to. Profit, which was the foreman or the contractor, to allow me to work on the restaurant prior to its opening. I was already hired for the restaurant. I just actually worked on the construction side before we opened. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And so then once the kitchen started going, you showed those guys that you could cook. Well, um, so when the restaurant opened... Daniel came down, came in, and I was fortunate to work alongside with him because um, I was a kitchen manager. So he passed down his information to me in order for me to distribute it, to, to disperse it through the team. So he took notice that I had some basic skills and some and a and a a palette that would that can be developed, and mm-hmm. he took interest into me. And I found myself working alongside him more often, like more than maybe he would have done with anyone else. Mm. Like he like literally took to working with me, um, brought me up to the executive team, um, put me in with Andrew Miller on the research and development side with him, with them too. So I began to learn a lot of, I don't want to just say like a lot of, techniques but putting names to things that came to me naturally Mm. you know what i mean yeah so refining that raw talent that you got from your grandmother and that you could do for your brothers and sisters and someone just saying like oh yeah you figured this out on your own but here's how it's actually what it's called this is what it's called you know what i mean yeah Yeah. what you're actually doing and how you're doing it if you do it this way you see, you get a better product. You know, it's interesting because so much of this industry is still mentor mentee. Yeah. And those relationships. And you have been very vocal about paying it forward to people who may have been overlooked in the past. And I think what's happened in, especially in this last year, you know, at least since March and even before that is that, uh, people are reexamining the restaurant culture and who gets to have a restaurant, who gets to have a business. And I think local was one of those first places that's saying, you know, this doesn't have to be this 
very elite class of people who own these types of restaurants. It really should be more democratic and you'll get a better community and better food out of it. So what was it like to be at the center and continue to be at the center of, you know, the larger restaurant corporation that you're with, with Daniel and giving people who have maybe not seen those opportunities a chance to be in the kitchen? Um, I think for me, for me and many people that come up in our community, all we, all we pray for is opportunity. Mm. Um, and, and given opportunity, we always want to give back. You know, it's like pulling each other up. Yeah. But a lot of times it's just a dream. You know what I mean? It's always, um, if I could, if I, I mean, if I could, I would, or, you know what I mean? So when local, when Daniel and Roy actually came to the community, first off, the way they came in was so respectable and, and, and just different. Like they allowed themselves to be accepted into the community by first reaching out to the community and having like a quorum forum with community leaders and explaining the vision and idea behind Loco, you know, and allowed us to take them by the hand and guide them into our community. It wasn't just about coming in and giving us something they thought we needed. You know, this was something that was being worked out for almost two years before construction started. Yeah. That people doesn't, don't know about. Like, so they changed the game on how to enter a community. You know, when you claim that you're doing something or building something for the community. Like, you know what I mean? They let the community be a part of the idea. And then the idea of, you know, turning a business over to be ran and operated by the community members was just something unheard of. You know, like Loco most definitely was ahead of his time in the idea of, you know, giving back and reaching back to underserved communities and entering these food deserts. Like, it just, it was crazy. Yeah. I always, you know, sitting on the outside and knowing that restaurants close for various reasons, but I thought the extra heaped on criticism for what local was trying to do from outsiders uh, was unfounded. And I think came from a real misguided spot. You know, I thought what they were trying to do and what you guys were doing at local was so different and was so ahead of a time that the people who rallied against it just didn't understand, just didn't really quite get what it was trying to do, or maybe didn't see it as something genuine. And so they came out against it. So I thought, or maybe you know, you're just scared of giving other communities or other well, culture yeah. or giving other culture opportunity. I mean, let's yeah. talk about it. if we're gonna be frank and honest, this yeah, let's do it. industry is like dominated by ninety-eight percent Caucasian, like French and like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and and they control the game. So that's one thing I respect about Daniel. We did an event. We did an event in the wine country. Um I forgot where it was at, it was a private event. And he took me. I was the only black person. I was the only person of color. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. If, if only we can allow other people to enter into this um, realm, this culinary realm, then we can create and bring new dishes, like something new. Because according to a lot of people, the food had became so familiar. Everybody was doing the same shit, copying each other. Yeah. But they wasn't bringing any any new influences in. And well, yeah. then, then the opportunity happened with me and Daniel, but 
that's what local was able to do. It was able to open the door for new influences to come in. Like, had it been for local, I mean, Daniel and I wouldn't have met. And right. we wouldn't have been able to put our minds together to bring what he have and what I have and create this California cuisine that everybody seems to enjoy. Yeah. Well, I think they more than enjoy it. I think they love it. And we're going to take a quick break because we're going to get back and talk about the California soul food you two have been making, Alta Adams, and about the current state of the restaurant industry. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Thank you for your cloying aromas, your beautiful views of royals and lomas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush, after the gold rush. I know a man who walks in my neighborhood. He made beautiful songs, but he never so much, so much. Came too long after the gold rush. And he fell in with people you don't trust. Now he can't pay for his own lunch. But I don't judge. Don't judge. At the cafe where I practice my Spanish, she asked me if I had an acne can manage. My mom's name is Janice. She's not why I'm manic. I'm good with a secret. I'm not naming names. But give me 10 minutes and things may have changed. California. California. Thank you for your cloying aromas, your beautiful views of royals and lomas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush, after the gold rush. Hand gripping the wheel on the freeway, young enough to sell, old enough to repay. Last minute flight was a couple hundred each way. I got a memory the star and you I need to replay. I heard you got a new main thing. I heard he shuffles, but he can't swing. The kind of guy to wear shorts to a funeral. But I'm going to stay composed like a movie cue. Under the surface, I'm batshit bananas. All last minute chances and flashes of panic. Don't judge. Don't judge. Not too often I say what I really want much. But California. California. Thank you for your cloying and aromas, your beautiful views of royals and lomas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush. After the gold rush. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Chef Keith Corbin. And where we are in your timeline is that locals closed. You are working with Daniel Patterson, opening up restaurants in the Bay Area, sort of navigating this new cuisine that obviously everyone is paying attention to from San Francisco, but it's also having a national ripple effect as well. When did you start thinking about coming back to your hometown of LA and opening a place? And what made you want to open up in West Adams? So, um, Again, like it was never no 
forward thinking about this. It was never like no idea for years or anything like that. Like I had just came home from prison in 2014. Local opened in 2016, 15, 16, and then out to 2018. So this is happening really fast. There's no time to think it through. Um, I'm just learning and coming up with create ideas as we go along. So on local, prior to local closing, I was brought onto the executive body side and was moved up north to help open local in the Bay Area, um, downtown Oakland and West Oakland mm-hmm. and um, San Jose, and even was working on a deal with Nipsey Hussle to open one on Crenshaw. Mm. Um, so it was supposed to be the second one in LA was going to be on Crenshaw. Um, but so, but being up there, Daniel had a restaurant empire. Yeah. And I stodged during my free time away from local and all these various restaurants, you know, it was exciting to me. It was new. Yeah. Um, things were going on. So you had Alfred Steakhouse. I was able to go in there and learn the grill and learn temperatures and learn this and actually work with meat. Then Kwa and that level of cooking and cuisine and um, control. Um, you had the original Alta CA. You had um, you had various restaurants. So as I was venturing through the various restaurants that Daniel had, I started to really see these techniques and these ideas that was going on with food. And it was just like, damn, I wonder if I can apply this to the food that I enjoy. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, Daniel, like I said, Daniel and I did an event in the, um, in the, in this wine country where we took, we took the idea from local, which was the foldy. Yeah. And so and so we created a dish there using uh, griddled kale and some other stuff that we stuffed it with. So when I'm thinking of this idea about the California soul food, mm. like I'm like, what if we take, because I don't want to just do collard greens in a bowl. So I'm like, what if we take the collard greens and stuff them in the way that we use the kale when we did that $700 plate dish dinner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's like the candy yams. Like, I don't want to just do a bowl or mushy candy yams. Like, what if we do a gruton or pave? You know what I mean? Because now I'm seeing these different techniques and it's like, I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I see the correlation with them. Like, the gruton's and the pave, they use the potatoes and like, well, yam is a potato. And it's like, yeah. what if I just do it this way? And we just talked it over. We used to drive. I used to fantasize about these ideas. And, you know, I told Dan, I said, I want to open my own restaurant by the time I'm 40 and have my own black tie event in my own restaurant. And at the time I was 37. Mm-hmm. And he said, put a three-year business plan together. I'm like, well, you partner with me. He said, put a three-year business plan together. In the meantime, there's other work to be done, right? Yeah. So, you know, because I'm just, we're dreaming. You're right. And um, not unknown to me that Daniel's, Daniel was working on a deal 
in LA. So my idea, my dream was always to come back home. Like I never just wanted yeah. to live in the Bay Area. But for me, it was a good place to get away because it was separated from the street life that I had down in LA. So mm. things I was able to do in the Bay Area that I could never do here. Like simply go to the fucking store without constantly looking over my shoulder. You know what I mean? Taking yeah. walks. Like like I was it was a, a place where I can decompress. Yeah. I enjoyed being in the Bay Area, but I always needed to come back home. So one day, Daniel, I was working at Die Alpha, and Daniel walked into the restaurant in the kitchen and called me out outside. And we was talking. He was like, remember that idea you had about the soul food? I'm like, yeah. And he was like, well, are you think you're ready now? <laughs> No, but literally, this is... I mean, that's so good. That's so good. This is six months after I told him, and he told me to come up with a three-year business plan. This is six months later. Now, what happened was he had another chef um, that was going to run this place, and I was going to be the sous chef. Mm. But the cuisine on a menu that he kept trying to come up with just didn't make sense. So it didn't work out. But I didn't know that Daniel had got rid of him. So mm. then he came to me and said, you ready to try your idea? The, I mean, the time is now. The slot is open. The position is available. Like the idea, you have it. You think you're ready. And I'm shaking my head no and saying yeah at the same time. Or I'm, yeah. saying, I'm shaking my head yeah and thinking no at the same time. Whatever it is, it was like a, a mix of emotions. You know what I mean? And I'm... Um, but that's a beautiful thing. And all the experience, you know, from what you learned from your grandmother and then local and then yeah. all these refined techniques that you could then reinterpret because that's the great thing about cooking, right? And that's a great thing about having your own spot is that you get to pick and choose what works best, Yeah, you know? And some of those classic techniques, some of those really fancy behind the scenes that the diner may not have noticed – yeah. When you apply that to something like a soul food, right, or something that is seen as a more approachable style of cooking and eating, you start sneaking in those high-end techniques, and it takes it to a whole other level. A whole other level. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it just does. It just does wonders for the for for how the food comes out. Yeah, and now you know Alta Adams has been on the top of a lot of lists um, and been really big for the community and obviously you know this year community both in restaurants those who work there those who eat there have been devastated by covid you know and in addition to covid there's also the social revolution that we're living through right now how has the restaurant responded to you know the changings and the the reexaminations of you know relationships in 2020 both with the restaurant industry social relations, race relations, things like that. Because the great thing about your restaurant is that, you know, it's sort of, you can't put it in a box, right? Like it's diverse. It's open to different ideas. You can do, like you said, your black tie upscale dinners. You can also go in for a down-home soul food meal. How have you redefined what it means to be your place? But that's California, right? Yeah. Like California has like various levels of people and culture. Mm. And like, that's what we wanted to capture 
at Alpha just be inclusive of everyone. Like every anybody can come there and feel like they're part of it, you know, whether you high end or you're just wherever you at, you can find the energy there for you. You know what I'm saying? And like, like, and that's that. That's what we wanted to capture, uh, and that was the whole idea. And also, separating like California soul food. Um, I didn't want to just do replicate Southern soul food, but sure. I also didn't want to. I mean, abandon my heritage. That's what I inherited. That's what I knew. Uh, my grandmother didn't leave recipes behind, which was a great thing. So I was able to trailblaze a mm. new path to a familiar dish. That, you know what I mean? Yeah, to deframe and reframe and make something old new again, and and being able to take what's around me, you know what I mean? And I just I just always think about like the creators of this cuisine, you know, and they're and they're and following the diasporas from West Africa to the South to California, and it's like everywhere they stopped the dishes are different. Like the oxtails in the South is different from the oxtails in Jamaica and the Caribbean. And mm-hmm. that's because they were creating dishes. They were making things that was familiar with them to them, but what was from what, but what would they had around them? So it's like, why am I in California and want to look for all the ingredients that they using in the South to create these dishes? No, we inherit creativity. The ability to create. That's what my ancestors gave me. The ability to be creative. So mm. I was around me and created something that and used techniques and created from these ideas that was familiar. Let's just take gumbo, for instance. Gumbo in the South is G-U-M-B-O. But its proper translation is okra, G-O-M-B-O. Mm. So in West Africa, you have this idea of gumbo, which starts from an okra stew mm. that, that they use red um, palm oil. Instead of olive oil, they use palm oil. They saute the vegetables in and put the prawns in there and use um, fish stock and, and build it up. They get over to, um, to, to, to the South. They have this familiar idea they just recreated with other things that they had available that we have gumbo now. So then when I get here, I just recreated it for how we eat in California. And it's a vegan gumbo. The base of it is a vegan gumbo in which you can add prawns, chicken, and sausage. Mm. But it's it's more tailored to the original G- gumbo, G-O-M-B-O, which is an okra stew. Mm. So I love that. Okra. It's no rule, no butter, flour. You know what I mean? Uh, so, and, and that's just what I wanted to do to the cuisine. I wanted to go back from the beginning and see how these dishes translated over time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and that just gave me the like the okay because you you play with some of these dishes and, and you can really get in trouble with people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I it's it's interesting in in being able to. Just redefine and make it your own. Yeah. Now, now you know you you talked a, a little bit earlier about uh, Daniel and Roy coming to the community 
and supporting in Watts and using the restaurant as a way to give people opportunity. And obviously right now there are people who are struggling with restaurants opening and closing and you as a restaurant owner are responsible in some ways for the people that work for you. You know, you take that responsibility on as the leader. Um, how are you dealing with these changes? And again, we're recording in December of 2020 and when this airs probably in 2021, it might be different, but how are you helping? How are you supporting? What are you able to do? I know you did a couple of specialty dinners with some collaborations when the small window, when we reopened, but how have you adjusted the business and, and working with the people who work for you? So, um, for one, a lot of our focus has been feeding frontline workers and, mm. and dealing with things in that way and helping in that way. Um, we also have been constantly changing our business model to um, kind of see what it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall to yeah. see what works in order for us to keep our employees employed. With this situation right now, one idea that, that I have and that I've talked over with Daniel and the team is that I have Luella, um, Cali Soul in Culver City. Yeah. And the idea that I was thinking is because that's takeaway. And I wasn't going to open until after the COVID situation because I don't right. have to hire and let go. But I just had to furlough my staff from Alta. So what I'm thinking about is hiring them at Luella's and opening and then prepare the food at Alta and purchase it. And that way one hand washes the other and give jobs back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There will be no labor here and Alta is getting paid at a, at a percentage where they're making money for producing the food for Luella's, which would be sold by the employees. And now they can get a paycheck. I don't know, I haven't worked it all out yet, but just constantly thinking and like using what we have available to try to keep people employed. Um, so, yeah, some people have more to work with. Some people have less to work with. But for us, it's like taking what we have and figuring out how we can keep our people employed. Uh, we turned the coffee shop into the wine shop. You know, the wine yeah. shop is selling much better. So we're able to keep people employed in there. Um, people need wine during this time. That hasn't gone. That has it's more than more than ever, maybe. But when we get these when we get these big relief contracts, yeah. Or you know, um <clears throat> like right now we uh, was doing one we were feeding the music industry. Um when we get contracts like that, then we're able to bring the employees in. Yeah. Prepare these twelve hundred meals and four hundred meals. You know, when we had contracts we're feeding the frontline workers in the hospital. Like we were able to bring in the help, you know, but just on a day-to-day basis, like it's just hard. Yeah. It's hard. And, you know, with everything stalled in Congress and again, maybe that changes when this airs, but it's just tough. And you're putting a lot of, you're putting a lot on the backs of an industry that already takes a lot on. And I think with, Instagram and maybe social media and things like that. Maybe before this, people didn't really realize how much work goes into running a restaurant. Maybe they just saw the events and the pretty food and the news clippings. And I think if you don't understand what it takes to run a restaurant now, 
um, that's on you for not digging in to understand that it is a small business as much as it is a scene or anything else. Man, for us that's running a restaurant, we're like, like, we're learning what it really takes. To run. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's been an education for some of us as well. Sure. Um, like, because, you know, a lot of times you're, you open and you open and it takes off and it actually, that wave actually carries itself, you know? Um, but what, like, but for those that have actually been running a restaurant and like trying to get theirs off the ground or get to the point that some of us was able to, to start off at, we're now learning like, damn, you know, like it's not, it's not as easy for everybody. Like yeah. Alpha came out the gate running, you know, um, but now we're grinding. Yeah, like, that grind, and that grind is like it's like a um, it's a leveler. Like it, like it, like it, it it makes you really appreciate, you know. Yeah, like it, it's it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. Well, from the people who eat your food and and someone who who is looking forward to restaurants reopening. I appreciate that grind and the grind of the industry for those, and I hate to say it, who are lucky enough to still be able to hang on and have the opportunity to grind because there's maybe a hundred thousand restaurants now that are just never going to grind again. Yeah. And, and, and not to cut you off, but like that is the um, heartbreaking yeah. part is that yep. even coming out of this, our industry would never be the same. But, you know, to go back and, and we'll, we'll probably end here, but um, what I have seen and while this is a devastating time, is that maybe there is part of the old restaurant yep. scene that grinds away and gives opportunity. And I've seen it places like Bridgetown Roadie and other places with chefs who were part of a restaurant and have now left that and are doing stuff. You see it in San Gabriel Valley. You see it in downtown LA. You know, you see it in like the, uh, you know, the taco pop-ups, the, you know, the street food or people who are popping out of commissaries are saying I'm cooking my own food with my own story and people are responding to that. So maybe there is a silver lining. It's tough to see the silver lining right now. And I know how that sounds, but um, maybe it's a new dawn, you know, maybe it's a new industry on the other side. It goes back to that conversation I said I had with Daniel about damn, if only it was some new people coming into the culinary world. Right. Yep. It's like, it's like when you have a fire or, when after fall and winter, now we'll see what our spring look like. Yeah, and look, I mean, we'll we'll full circle it. Even two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the world collapses financially, and who emerges from that? But a Mr. Roy Choi, with a Kogi truck that changed the way that we saw the the way that people could eat out, could have a business, and the you know level the playing field where you didn't need to have a ton of capital or buy into. The hierarchy, you can just say, I'm going to do my own thing. And I think I think we'll see that again. Yeah, um, so, Chef, right. I can't thank you enough for taking time to chat with us. If people want to check out the restaurant or follow along with you, where can they go? How do they get to know what you're up to? Well, they can always follow us at Alta Adams Restaurant on Instagram or follow me at Chef Keith Corbin on Instagram or our restaurant, Alta Adams. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much, Chef. Appreciate you making the time. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. One, two, one, two.
My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. 
To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Records Studios in Silver Lake. It's a gorgeous day towards the end of summer and we have winter in the house. Welcome to Snacky Tunes Winter. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Um, Samira, you grew up in Brazil? Yeah, I grew up in Brazil, in Curitiba, in the south of Brazil. Nice. Um, what were your earliest memories of food and music from growing up in Brazil? Um, so for music, so my dad's American, and he listened to a lot of like punk rock. So people like Dad Kennedy's, like The Cramps. But then my mom listened to a lot of uh, Brazilian popular music, which is like Java, Caetano Veloso, Gal Costa, Milton Nascimento. And uh, so I grew up with both of those. And then food-wise, at the time, I wasn't vegetarian because now I am vegetarian. But I grew up with a lot of the typical foods, um, feijoada, rice, beans, plantains, um, and then in the south of Brazil, where I'm from, there's a lot of European influence. So there's a lot of afternoon coffee and tea, pastries, mm. German things. So kind of a mix. A real mix. Um, Brazil's a little bit more of a melting pot than people would think. Uh-huh. Uh, how did that affect what you loved about your own personal journey of music and getting into different cultures as you grew up? I think it really kept me open-minded because there was such a mix of people being into European things, people being into American things, people being into Brazilian things, people being into African-influenced things. So I think I just kind of always had an open mind musically, food-wise. Um, just kind of the way I walk about this earth is pretty open-minded. Um, yeah, I think it was a really good experience. What took you away from home? What pulled you to the States? So it was kind of a plan of my dad's, who he's American, um, to have me go to school in the U.S. Um, even though at the time in high school, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I should stay here because I really loved living in Brazil. Um, it was a plan to go to college in Boston. Shout out. That's where I went to school. Oh, cool. Where did you go? I went to BU. Nice. I went to Emerson. Ooh, down the street. Yeah. Did you ever eat it on a taqueria? Uh-huh. Love the best. It. The best. Love it so much. I dream of it. So much. You know where I dream of, too? A couple places. Um, did you ever go to Finale, that dessert place? No. I'm not a big dessert guy. It's so good. Did you ever go to El Pelon? It was another Mexican place. It was near oh, Fenway. No. There was this really cool old... Um, Thrift store. I still remember I got these old Pixies 12 inches there. Uh-huh. But yeah, it was like record shopping and tacos and burritos. Oh, so good. Yeah. A um, little bit of a cultural difference between Brazil and Boston. It was the biggest shock ever. Uh, at least you got there in the fall. At least you weren't thrown right into winter. I know. It was the biggest shock, though. I mean, what is that like growing up in Brazil and then going to Boston is very specific for anyone who hasn't spent time in Boston. <laughs> it's a very, very specific city, um, much more so than in New York or Los Angeles. It definitely made me grow up um, really way more serious of a place, very academic, 
even just dressing wise, like people's style is so it's more conservative. It's all navy, black, stripes. That's it, you know. Um, they don't let you into Boston without a pair of black pants. Yeah, you need. <laughs> you need a good pair of black pants. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Um, yeah, it was a shock, definitely. And a good punk scene. In, yeah. in uh in Boston um or there's some like post hardcore well, type of yeah. bands I mean the thing about Boston is I think it fluctuates a lot but for me it was really important because that's where I really discovered like shoegaze and dream pop and mm. kind of like a like east coast indie rock cuz and a lot of noise and ambient music too um, which I think if I would have gone to school anywhere else, I probably would have been influenced in a different way. So it was really crucial for that, and I'll always be so thankful for, for that experience. And they have a strong DIY scene, mm-hmm. a lot of house shows, a lot of things like that. Did you get in the mix with those? Yeah, because I was studying journalism. So for, uh, for my last year, I was doing a documentary on the noise scene in Boston. So I was just going to basement shows, interviewing people. I was just super into that. Awesome. Let's hear a song. First one's in Portuguese, right? Yeah. What, what is it? It's called Memoria Colorida, which means colorful memory. Love it. Okay, here we go. We got Winter at Dangerbird Record Studios on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Oh, man. That took me back to uh, Boston Dorm Days 2003. (laughs) Isn't it a good thing? It's a good thing. That's where it all starts. Doesn't it? Boston dorm rooms. Like, literally, that's how everything started. (laughs) I mean, I think I'm a little bit older, but definitely tail end of Napster days for me. (laughs) And, God, I can't remember. There was a website that used to put up all like full live indie rock concerts I listen to like Ida and the makeup and just like sit in my room and be like no it gets me I loved it because I got I would get so moody like I would be like in the cold in the rain listening to super like you know depressing oh. music like and I would just be like yeah I'm so moody and I couldn't go out because it was so much snow like, I know you couldn't do anything I think my darkest days were Boston winters Dude, and I gained so much weight too. I was eating a bagel like every day. Oh yeah, and pizza. It was so good though. It was so good. Yeah, for uh, <laughs> for people who don't know, Boston has its own specific type of pizza. Uh huh. Um, which is very regional, very specific. Um, when did you start getting into making your own music? Was it before you went to college? Was it your dad's? musical influence, your mom's musical influence, or was it those moody, dark days of Boston? (laughs) Well, winter definitely started in the moody, dark days of Boston. Um, So aptly named band. In the winter, yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, (laughs) Because I couldn't do anything else except just play music. Um, But I started writing, like, when I was, like, 12 or so, and just... But I never really, like, uh, showed it to people. I always... Uh, talked about music as a hobby I'd be like oh no like not really that serious about it um and then yeah I think it was in college really that I started I played in a band with some friends in the dorm room and all of that and it was so fun and so I was like oh man maybe I should try to like record some songs that I have and yeah that's how it started around in college mainly um and when did it start creeping in as something that you were doing as less as a distraction from the cold as something more full-time, more serious? Well, it's funny because I actually I had a, a boyfriend at the time that was like, he kind of had like an intervention with me. He was like, Samira, you need to like start taking yourself more seriously because it's clear that you love music. Like you just need to give it a try. And so after that, I kind of, like, woke up and I was like, okay, I need to, like, actually try to do it and try to have a band and all of that. Um, But I think when I moved to L.A., I think the vibe here in L.A., everyone is such a hard worker, but in, like, this very relaxed way, which is sort of the way I work, is, like, I'm always really working, but... It's it's a weird it's like a different way of working than in the East Coast where everyone's so stressed out. Oh yeah. Here everyone's working super hard, but everyone's making it look easy. Yeah, it's uh I don't know. I wrestle with this too because I see people and I cuz I spent so much time in New York of just people who would just sit at their desks and be so stressed but not do the work and I go you're stressed cuz you're just <laughs> You're bullshitting for four hours. Just fucking do your work and go home. And here it's more like, like do your work and then go hang outside. Yeah. And go hit nature. Yeah. Um, did you drive across country? I, um, so I, I flew, but I did a, a trip 
that was like a, my first California trip, which was just like a West Coast mm -hmm. trip with my sister when I moved here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I honestly wouldn't be where I am right now if it weren't for my bandmates. Oh, yeah. Um, and like be able to sound good and take it seriously because like I think it's so you can't really do it by yourself. And so just having people that are available to tour, people that are supporting you who want to make the song sound good, I think that's what really takes it to the next level. Yeah. Um, how did you meet the three other people standing in this room? Um, so I met each person separate, like in different ways. I met Justine because I played a show with her old band, Summer Twins. Oh, that's a good band name. <laughs> Wait, so was it winter and summer tours yeah. on the same Yeah, we film? played a lot of shows together. We've actually and it was amazing because everyone would just be like, oh my God, winter, summer. <laughs> I mean, I know you're mocking those people, but. No, it's cool. Did you make t shirts? Yeah. Yeah, we have that winter tour? and summer twins t shirts. Yeah, we did actually make, um, did a collab t shirt. <laughs> if you have size for a uh, 37 year old dad large. We do. We actually we couldn't do. really get rid of them. Yeah, All right. this bright color. I'll, oh, you're <laughs> speaking my language. They I'll were take, cool. I'll take oh one off your hands. I'm gonna bring you one. Okay. Um, what about the two? What about guitar and drums? How'd you guys meet? So Anders, I met through Justine. No, the, no, we met oh briefly, God. like like several years before that. Across the street, Silver Lake Lounge. Silver Lake Lounge. Oh, right. yep. Legendary dive bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just yeah. remember what he was wearing. Yeah, where's the coolest clothes? He was That's wearing, how like, I met him too. Coat. It's like his outfit, just like you Stand have out. to say something because he dresses so cool. Intentional. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, it's it's uh, the outfits speak more than I ever possibly could. Hey man, fashion's a beautiful thing. Fashion is life. Yeah. And then I met Ian because we played a show with Final Williams, the band he used to play in, like a couple years ago. So this is always interesting to me because you have two people who were in bands uh, before they joined this one. How does that conversation go? No, but were you in a, honors, were you in a band too? Yeah. They're all mm -hmm. still yeah. in other bands. Oh, yeah. It's that vibe. They're all still in other bands, yeah. I mean, we could, we'll do off the record of what your favorite <laughs> band to play in, but we'll say winter. Uh -oh. We'll say winter on the record. Uh -oh. um, I mean, I found that a lot about the L.A. scene, that there is a lot of overlap and a lot of people playing in different projects and collaborating and things like that. Um, I think it works because I think there's different cycles of, mm. like, creativity and touring. And I think, like, I think there's cycles of being super busy and then cycles of being at home. And so, like, being at home, it's like you can play in other projects and have time for all of that. Awesome. Well, let's hear another song. This next one's about your cat, right? Yeah. What's it called? It's called Zoe. I assume that's the cat's name. It is. Okay. That'd be really funny if it was not her name. <laughs> uh, here we go. Winter on Snacky Tunes at Dangerbird Record Studios on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Amazing. Thanks. Does your cat know that the song's about her? I think she knows. You're like, Zoe, I have something special for you. It's an audio treat. Um, so you have a few albums out, and you just put out uh, your latest EP. Um, when do you decide it's time to put out new music, and can you talk to me a little bit about what was the inspiration? I mean, it feels like dreamy West Coast days in this last EP. Definitely. Definitely not that Boston Dark Days. Definitely not. Um, that EP was kind of like this like summer, really, that I wrote a lot of those songs. Except Always Teenager, which was probably like a super... It was just like a really sad moment. But other than that, all those songs were very happy moments inspired by the summer. And uh, yeah, living here and having really good memories. Um. What do you like more, or I guess it's different, about writing happy California summery music versus those dark Boston tracks? It's it's weird because it's like sometimes there's I want to be writing a certain thing, but I think it really has to do where you're at, like personally, like... I feel like I'm always going through something different and kind of at a different place internally. And so it ends up just reflecting that. Like sometimes I'm like, oh man, I really want to make like this kind of like vibe. But it, if I'm not experiencing that, then it's hard for me to really feel it, you know, and really make that. I get that. True songwriting. Yeah, it just, it, it's pretty personal. And then sometimes it's just sort of like, I feel like I'm very inspired by music, so it's like the music that I'm into inspires what I write to. Do you ever pull from those old punk bands from your dad or any of the more classical Brazilian stuff from your mom? Mm, so I haven't really done any of the punk stuff, but um, for my mom I have. I did a record with my friend all on like cassette tape, and it's... Pretty much, I don't know if I'll ever do a record like that again, but it's all, like, very Brazilian and, like, still pretty dreamy, but kind of more, like, uh, late 60s kind of inspired music. Mm. Yeah, so I did that. It's, like, Winter and Trip Tides, and the album is called Estrela Magica. Oh, nice. So all you need is a cassette player, right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I think I still got one. Um, And you have... uh, some live shows coming up, right? You're hitting the road it, yeah, September, later this month. we're at the bootleg, I believe, on the 21st. Everyone looks around. I'm, like, looking around. Andy we're usually knows these things. Now. Is there a nod from Andy in there? No? Maybe? I think Maybe. it's either the 20th or the 21st. All right, we'll check the tapes. Um, and I, it's with a band from Brazil. Oh, nice. Called Bugarins. Do you make that? I mean, you toured down there, didn't you? I have. What's the difference in playing shows in Brazil versus playing in the States? Oh, my God. It's so different. Justine can elaborate. You will probably get shocked at least, like, three times. Oh, fi- oh physically? <laughs> like, like shocked by the mic. Oh. Not <laughs> That's fun- the only thing. That's the only thing that was a little bit stressful. Everything else was a ton of fun. Everything starts late. So, like, they'll say the show starts at 9, but it will start at, like, midnight. Oh, man. So, we that- played once at... Five in the morning? Yeah. Because... <laughs> no, I feel like 
I've played a couple times at like You five. probably have, but I, yeah. I've only d- done this once and I was like falling asleep, just like did it and it was insane. I feel like that would drive me nuts yeah. as a planner. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I am. I'm pretty like specific like with time yeah she's a virgo she so. really uh, helps the band just like stay together like stay what on time, time are we everything up? has to be on time like, just go to the promoter hey so we're i'm seeing we're six hours behind which is totally fine <laughs> yeah. but do you have a cot i can nap on there's also a lot of making out people make out like yeah. right in front like, of you. like right in front of the sh- like of you'll be playing and they'll just like be right in the standing in the front row like me which is cool it's like oh Okay. They really get in the music. It's like, yeah. it's just like, woo. Yeah. A little bit different than the States. Yeah. States is like, oh, I think I saw some head nodding in the back. <laughs> um, and you're also playing Desert Days, one of California's best music festivals. Yeah. I mean, I I honestly think right now it's it's like probably one of the best like in the world. Yeah. Like, I'll say in the world. I mean, I was being fair to the rest of the state in the world, but... <laughs> the country but uh it's like so exciting to be on the same bill as like stereo lab like yeah that's so wild i think they have a clear point of view i think a lot of festivals now start and they go all right we know that we can just pull this touring festival list and we'll just put it in our own backyard but that one feels very um specific yeah i think it's very experiential and i'm so excited to play it awesome um, all right. Well, I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song. But where can people hear the music? Follow you on Instagram. Look for tour dates. Figure out if it's the 21st <laughs> or the 22nd. Um, so daydreaming winter is the keyword. Um, Instagram is daydreaming winter. Facebook, Bandcamp. And then on Spotify, it's just winter. Sweet. Well, thank you, all of you. Thank you. Thank what you a pleasure. Yeah, this is great. Shout out to Zoe. Wherever you are. Shout out to Zoe and all the cats listening. All the cats listening. I think at this point we have more cats listening than people, so we're pretty (laughs) stoked. Uh, I want to thank you to Danger Bird Records, Andy, everyone. Thank you so much. Here's Winter one more time on Snacky Tunes, heritageradionetwork.org. We will see you next week. Goodbye.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.